Well, I feel like we could give an invitation to go home already, don't you? Wow. We, uh, we need to be shaken. The Bible says that God does not despise a broken and a contrite heart. And how rare is it that he sees it? Uh, he delights in that. Brokenness is not something to be afraid of. Brokenness is the way of blessing. And uh, that was a great challenge and song. I appreciate it very much. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you again for allowing me to have this privilege. I said last night, this is homecoming, and I feel like I've come home. Because uh, when I first came to Canada, this is the first stop I made, was here in St. Thomas. That's why I came to Canada. I came to visit Mike Elstock, pastor that uh, started this church. And uh, first place I preached was here. And I've been in every building that you've been in and watched your progress and grown. And I also, um, I had it somewhere in my file. I see it every now and then, and I don't know why I couldn't find it. I tried yesterday to find it, but I got a yellow piece of paper, yellow stationery, Bible Baptist Church, St. Thomas, and it's all creased and folded from the age of the year. So it's four, over 40 years old, but it's the letter of invitation uh, that this church gave for me to come to Canada and do your work in Hamilton. So that's basically how it was said to the government. said, we, we are standing behind Mr. McLean. We've invited him to Canada to come and go to the city of Hamilton to carry out our work there, uh, something to that effect. And so when I got to the border and wanted to come across the border into Canada, I gave him that letter and it got me in. So whatever happens, it's your fault. <laughs> I just point the finger here. It's all St. Thomas. That's where it all started. Uh, anyway, I love, uh, I love being here. I love uh, so many folks in this room I've known for so many years, and you've been so gracious and kind to me, and I am so thankful. I am blessed beyond measure. I, uh, I have family everywhere, and of course, if you're saved and you understand the principle, uh, you have family everywhere. And maybe you've not got to travel like I have, and I haven't got to travel that much, actually. I, I made a trip overseas the last a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I got to go to Vanuatu, uh, which used to be the New Hebrides Islands. It's a series of 80-some islands, and I got to visit uh, one of them and spend some time with missionary Jeremy Pinero. And um, that's the first time, I think, since 2001. In 2001, I got to go to the Philippines. But I'll tell you what, it is so wonderful to go around the world and, and find a church. Uh, and the church is the same. It's just wonderful. Uh, God's grace transforms people and transforms families and transforms home and homes. I got to visit a little church called Harvest Baptist Church in, uh, in the jungle. We took about a three-hour trip from where Luganville Baptist Church is, where Brother Panero pastors, and we went in a truck, and, oh, the roads are hard to describe, and the jungle's hard to describe, and it was raining that day. We didn't know if we were going to make it through. We had to cross a river and, uh, in the truck and all that. Anyway, we made it. And uh, it was a church that quite possibly you helped to build, the building. You gave some money, uh, and uh, so have several other Canadian churches, and the, that money is going to help uh, village, village uh, people build church buildings. And uh, they were excited to have us there and uh, fixed a big meal. It's hard to describe. It was a sacrifice for them to do that. And uh, then they talked about the Lord smiling and singing the songs in their language. But I knew what they were singing because I know the song. I knew the tune. But they're singing it in their language, which is Bislama. And there's just no way to describe the joy 
that you have to, to think that, that the same Jesus that saved you has been instrumental in transforming their lives. Uh, one of the pastors over there, his grandpa was a cannibal. And he ended up being raised by a witch doctor and then sent away to school as a young man because he showed promise. And uh, they wanted to get him an education so he could come back and bless his village. Well, while he was in school, somebody came and preached the gospel. And he got saved. A couple of years later, he felt God calling him to preach in the jungles. And so he went to his dad and very respectful, said, Dad, I feel like God wants me to be a preacher. And dad, who had been a slave, dad had actually enslaved himself and his wife to the witch doctor in order for the witch doctor to help their son survive because they had other children die. And so they were indebted to him and he was fearful to go to his dad, but his dad looked at him and said, son, I've learned one thing in life. If God tells you to do something, you better listen. And so he became a preacher. And now he's in Big Bay and has a Bible school. He has a village up there on the top of the hill in the midst of the jungle. And then he has a cleared out area and he's got a Bible school where he's training men and young couples to go back into the bush and start churches and win souls. They travel in the back of a truck by, for three hours to come to uh, Luganville in order to run evangelism all day long. We had over 2,000, I think it was 2,600 people came during the course of the week for medical treatment, three and a half days, and uh, every one of them would go to the evangelism tent after seeing the doctors and wait there while we got their prescriptions ready. And those people tirelessly for like seven hours a day sat there, new people coming all the time into the tent, and, and shared the gospel with them. Then got in the back of a pickup truck and rode three hours back home three days later. Uh, it's amazing um, what, uh, what Christ can do in a life. And uh, I have felt burdened. Uh, I, I, um, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. So I, sometimes I wonder, but I feel this is exactly what God laid upon my heart. So I'm trying to, to take the occasion of your church anniversary and your homecoming to just reinvest or re-emphasize to you what the church truly is. And I hope it's helpful. We need to see the church as it is. And so we, we started in Ephesians 5 last night. We're going back there again tonight for just a minute. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to read a little differently tonight. I'm going to read... Uh, one of the latter verses first and then back up a little bit. So Ephesians 5 and verse 32. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes and says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Going back now to verse number 25, he had said, Husbands... Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So he challenges the husbands in relationship to their wives by the example of Christ in the church. And he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Did you know that the word gave there literally is a word translated elsewhere in the New Testament, betrayed? It's the same word when it talks about Judas betraying Jesus. He delivered him over to 
his enemies. And, but the Lord said, uh, what Paul says is that Jesus delivered himself over. He laid down his life. He gave himself up for the church. And then he goes on to say he did that, that he might sanctify it. That means to set it apart and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. What word? His word, the word of God. It's the word of God that's a cleansing agent. Jesus said, now you are clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. So here he has given himself for the church with the goal of by his word, making it different, setting it apart in the world and cleansing it. That he might present it to himself. You know, the word present there means literally to place beside, to set before, to place beside. So the picture is accurate. He's like a husband, takes a wife, that she may be by his side. So the Lord Jesus is holy and cleansed. He, there is no sin in him. He is pure and holy. And so he takes and sets his love upon the church and he washes it, cleanses it with a washing of water by the word and presents it to himself. The picture of the church being a bride, the bride of Christ. So Bible Baptist Church of St. Thomas, who are you? You are the bride of Christ. Do you know when it says here that he loved the church and gave himself for it? The church didn't exist. There was no assembly. There was no born-again believing assembly that he was dying for, but he knew there would be, and he had in prospect this assembly. And he laid down his life for you with the intent that he could use his word to cleanse you. So we went back to the book of Lam uh, Song of Solomon, and we listened to the uh, observers watching King Solomon come up from the wilderness and asking, who is this that comes up out of the wilderness leaning on our beloved? And so we use that picture in um, the Song of Solomon to picture Christ in the church. And here's what I was trying to say to you last night. And uh, I, I hope you'll forgive me if I labor the point. If you got it, wonderful. I felt a little bit last night like I didn't do a, a fair job in getting it across to you. The, the Christian faith, the relationship of me as a believer to Christ is not one that waits for me to get to heaven. He didn't lay down his life for me to save me just so that I could come to the palace one day, come to the throne room one day, and live in enjoyment of his splendor and all of his wealth and all of his riches. The picture was that that the Shulamite girl was coming to the palace on her journey through the wilderness, and the world is like the wilderness to me, and as she comes, she's leaning on her beloved, and as she's leaning upon him, we imagine they're communing. We imagine she's listening to him. She is learning from him, and as she learns of him, she loves him. She falls in love, and her heart is captivated, and if you took the time to read thoughtfully, prayerfully, and carefully the Song of Solomon, you'd be amazed at the way she professes her love for him, but also you'd be amazed at the way he professes his love for her. It's a contest of loves. 
I want you to understand that what was happening is his love, his grace, his beauty, his wisdom was stirring up in her a love in response. And so the more I learn of the Savior, the more I lean upon him, the more I grow in my knowledge of him, the more I am motivated to love him. Doesn't the scripture say we love him because he first loved us? Didn't the apostle Paul say to the Corinthian church, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And he died so that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him that loved them, who died for them, and rose again. That's what I'm trying to get at. So when you, when you look at the church, when you look at the assembly, you need to look at it as the bride of Christ. And I am assuming that, that, uh, that you would be respectful and polite and kind and loving and patient with the bride of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Especially if you realize that that's who you are. If you are his bride and you realize how much he loved you and what he did for you, then you realize that, that the assembly of which you're part, the same story belongs to all of them. And so the church is a, a, a treasured place, a beautiful place, a place of harmony and unity and devotion because we're all united in a deep abiding love for him. I've been in the ministry long enough to tell you this. If that's not going on in your life, if you as a church member are not leaning on the wilderness or leaning on, the, on your beloved as you come up through the wilderness, you will not enjoy church. But the more you fall in love with him, the more you'll love to be at church. Someone said, I don't know who, but he said, and you may agree or disagree, he said, he who does not love Christ supremely, the song kind of hinted at that tonight, will soon find out that he is not able to love Christ at all. You see, you ought to love him with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, or it doesn't work. And I'm challenging you. I'm going to give you a challenge. If you can, and you have a Bible study time or a devotional time, uh, I would challenge you uh, to, to pick a period of time, 30 days, uh, two months, whatever, and start in Matthew. And so like the songwriter said, uh, while the dew is still on the roses, I come to the garden and I walk with him and I talk with him. I would say, get alone and just read. If it's just one chapter in Matthew, then read one chapter. If it's two chapters, three chapters, four chapters, but work your way through the gospel record. Through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What you're doing, and do this deliberately, walk with Jesus. Just imagine yourself being present and ask yourself, what's he saying? Why is he saying that? What's he doing? Watch how he acts to people, those whom he chooses. Ask yourself, who are they? What do I know about them from what I'm reading in the text? And you will find, as you do that deliberately, you'll begin to know Jesus in a way that you can't help but respond to with deep love and appreciation. Not only that, you could read the, the book of Song of Solomon. But nonetheless, so... 
So as I finished last night, what I did is I went back in the Song of Solomon to chapter 6, and I, I suggested to you that the result of her love being inflamed as being chosen to be the bride of the king, she wanted to get busy for him. She wanted to be doing what he wanted to be doing. She wanted to be where he loved to be. And so she said to him in chapter six and verse, or chapter seven and verse 10, she said, come my beloved, let us go forth into the field. We said that could represent the world. The field is the world and the Lord Jesus uh, loves the world and, and, and sends us into all the world. Uh, let us lodge in the villages. I, I think that's suggestive of the community, the, the, the village, the place where we gather together and commune and fellowship. So the local church and then the devotional life, getting up early in the vineyards and going. So she longs to be in service with him. Why? Because she's loving him. She has gotten such an appreciation for what is important to him, and she understands it. And so she said, I'm all in. I want to go. I want to be there. I want to be a part of it. And now she's inviting him to come. Instead of him inviting her to come, she's inviting him to come. So the idea is that she wants to be in service. And at the end of that chapter, verse 13, the mandrakes give a smell. And in our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old. There's so much suggested here, and I just don't have time. Which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. What has she laid up for him? Old fruits and new fruits. Fruit bearing is what he's interested in. In John chapter 15, he said to his disciples, look, you, without me, you can do nothing. I'm the vine and you're the branches. And I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. He's interested in fruits. And so she said, uh, she says to her uh, beloved, she said, I know that your interest is in the fruits and I've, I've been laboring to bring fruit and I want you to come and enjoy them. I've laid them up for thee. Does that phraseology remind you of any other scripture? Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust do corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but rather lay up treasure for yourselves in heaven, laying up for. And the truth of the matter is, though it says lay up treasure for yourself, who are we really doing it for? We're doing it for the king. We're doing it for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, I want you to go back to chapter four. If you're in, in Song of Solomon, go to chapter four. And I didn't get a chance to, to do this, but in verse 8 and on, I just want to highlight a couple of statements. Here's, the, here's her beloved, here's the king speaking to her. And I'm just asking you, with the Holy Spirit in your heart as your witness, to take to heart these statements. He says in verse 7, about his beloved, his Shulamite bride. Thou art all fair, my beloved, or my love. There is no spot in thee. Do you know how the Lord Jesus sees you? And then he says in verse 9, Thou hast ravished my heart. That's picturesque language. What he's saying is, 
I love you with all my heart. You've captivated me completely. Look again at verse 10, how fair is thy love. Down in verse 12, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. So we're thinking about him. He's looking at her and said, you're a garden enclosed. What is he interested in? He's interested in fruit. When he loved the church and gave himself for it, it wasn't a church, but he looked at the the people for whom he was laying down his life as a garden enclosed, as those who could bring forth and would bring forth fruit unto him and to the glory of his father. So a garden enclosed. Um, Notice the next statement. A spring shut up. He that believeth on him, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. There's a a spring inside, a fountain that needs to be opened up and a fountain sealed. So, So he sets his love upon her and he set his love upon you and upon me. So he's given all this description. And then she answers in verse 16. Awake, awake, O north wind. Now, the north wind and the south wind, biblically speaking, talks about the circuit of the winds, and it talks about how God has ordained that that the wind brings the uh, moisture down and and saturates the earth and the fruits grow and so forth. But she's saying, oh, north wind. Well, I would suggest to you that the wind in the Bible is, is a representative of the Holy Spirit, the influence of the Spirit of God. And of course, God sits on the sides of the north. His palace, his his heaven is on the sides of the north, according to Scripture. So, O north wind, the wind that comes down from heaven, come thou south, come down and do what? Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Here is pictured the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to make sure you understand something tonight. It is the Holy Spirit working on your heart and mine that enables us to love Jesus. How many people do you know whom you've spoken to about Jesus, who's precious to you, and you may have even done it with tears in your eyes, you might have done it with pleading, and and they are unmoved. Jesus means nothing to them. He's a swear word. You can tell them all the truth about him. You can share what he did for them on Calvary and nothing happens. They need the gracious moving of the Holy Spirit. So we carry them before God in prayer and we plead for the moving of the Spirit of God. And it was only when the Spirit of God moved upon my heart that I was able to see him as he is, the eternal Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And my heart was warm toward him. But I guarantee you my heart will not stay warm to him unless it's the Spirit of God that is blowing upon my soul. Isn't that what the Bible teaches us? In, in, in his going away address to his disciples in John 14, 15, 16, and 17, he makes that very plain. He said, don't be troubled. I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you comfortless. I'm going to send the comforter who will come in my name, and he's going to come, and he's going to take the things that are about me and show them to you. He's going to reveal them to you. He's the one who magnifies the Savior. He's the one, according to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, who searches the deep things of God and reveals them to us. We could never know them otherwise. So, Pastor, why are you saying that? Well, because I'm afraid the reason we don't love Jesus the way we should is because we're not 
allowing the Spirit of God to do His work in our life. It's not that we don't want Him to do His work in our life. It's because we are doing one of two things. The Bible warns us in the New Testament about two things that we may do to the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we read these three words, or four words, quench not the Spirit. If you go to that passage, there's a whole list of very simple commands that really would give an outline of what the Christian life is all about. You know what comes right before don't quench the Holy Spirit? In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. When you and I are ungrateful and unthankful, what does it do? It throws a damper on the Spirit, and I'll explain in just a moment. You know what the next verse is? After it says, quench not the Spirit, it says, despise that means to look down on, to count as little of little importance. Despise not prophesyings. That's preaching. That's the declaring of the word and will of God. So let me ask you a question. If you have a loved one, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife, and, and you repeatedly tell them what you want, what would make you happy, and they ignore it. They just don't do it. They despise your prophesying. It's not that they, they, they don't say, I don't love you, but they just don't do what you have made plain to them you want to do. Well, after a while, when you've asked somebody to do something or you've made it plain to them and they don't do it, what do you do? You stop. They quenched you. They, 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 they suppressed you. They threw water on you. If you do something for somebody consistently and, and, and they never say thanks, they're ungrateful and they never give thanks. Now, we shouldn't stop, but what do we tend to do? We're not going to do it anymore because they're ungrateful. So those two things sandwich over quench not the spirit. These are sins of omission. When the spirit of God is trying to prompt us and plead, to, plead with us now, this happened this evening, and, and perhaps it happened this way because of what I was going to say to you about quenching the Spirit. But I was driving uh, on, uh, what's the Highbury, Highbury, I guess it is, it comes off of the 401. So I'm driving, and I don't know how far I was, maybe 10 minutes. Um, and on the other side of the road was a van. Uh, it actually looked like a taxi cab. A van was a taxi. And before I got to that, and its lights were flashing, there was a guy in front of it walking towards the 401, carrying a gas can. And if I was going his way, I would have immediately pulled over and offered to give him gas. And, but I'm going the other way. But I'm feeling like I should stop. It may be an opportunity to talk to him about the Lord. I had time, but I just kept driving for another minute or two. I couldn't quit. I, I don't know if it's the Holy Spirit or not, but I, wanted, I didn't want to ignore the Holy Spirit. I couldn't stop thinking about the guy. So I pulled off, turned around, went back down the road. It took me about four minutes to get back to where he was. He was gone. <clears throat> I went all the way back to the 401, to the gas station there. What is that called? Flying J. And so I went to the pumps. I thought, well, maybe he's there filling up his can. Maybe somebody took him there and they're going to fill up his can, but then he has to find a ride back. So I was going to say, hey, I was going that way anyway. I can give you a ride. Well, I couldn't find him. I didn't go. So I just got on the road and came back. I'm just saying this, so often we are not sensitive to the Spirit of God. We are not looking for His instruction. And, and when we, we are prompted to go to an altar, when we're prompted to read, when we're prompted to, to speak to somebody, when we're prompted, we just don't obey. 
And when we don't obey, we quench the Spirit. We suppress the Spirit. The Bible also warns us not to grieve the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4. And to grieve the Spirit means to wound Him, means to cause pain to Him. And that's when we have sins of commission. That's when we uh, do things that are wrong. So in Ephesians 4, where it says, grieve not the Spirit of God, it's talking about uh, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. It's talking about uh, let no... uh, unkind speech proceed out of your mouth but be kind one to another tender-hearted forgiving loving one another and so forth and it's giving us those things so don't grieve the holy spirit by disobedience i hope that the spirit of god will help you to get this tonight the reason a church does not does not have the glow of the love of christ is not because the people don't appreciate Christ and don't want to love love Christ, but because, number one, they're not spending time with him. They're not deliberately every day walking with him, leaning upon their beloved, and the only one that can influence that and bring out the fruit and the grace from our life is the Holy Spirit. He's the one God gave us to indwell us, and we're ignoring him or we are grieving him. So it's not about keeping rules, a dress code, or not about observing a certain kind of behavior because that's what the church asks you to do. It's about knowing that you need the Holy Spirit's influence in your life to bring forth fruit and to develop your love for the Savior. He's the one that reveals, and you need him active in your life. And so you want to make sure, knowing that he's the Holy Spirit, that you're not doing that which grieves him or quenches him. Well, I spent more time there than I wanted to. Going back to Ephesians chapter 5 for just a moment, who is Bible Baptist Church of St. Thomas? They're not only the bride of Christ, They are the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Looking again at at, uh, at Ephesians chapter 5 in verse number 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Notice the word head and body. Christ is the head of the church and the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So he's the groom and I'm the bride, but he's also the head and I'm the body. He's the head and we as an assembly are his body. And what does the body do? It submits to him in everything we are to carry out his work so I want you to think with me you know when we think about marriage we think about two people becoming one flesh they're joined together and we understand that usually to mean that when a child is born you have dad and mom combined together in that child they become one flesh we think of it in other ways emotionally and spiritually and so forth but when it comes to the when it comes to the church when it comes to the believer The disciples, for quite some time, walked with him. But then there came a day when they walked in him and he in them. He breathed upon them. They received the Spirit. And then he told them, wait 
until you be endued with power from on high and they waited and the spirit came and now they're walking in him and, and, and he in them instead of walking with him. They become one and we are endued by the spirit of God and so we say Christ is in me and we are his body. Now I must hurry, let me just make a couple of thoughts. The church then, this church, is the visible presence of Christ in this community. You cannot, you cannot see a spirit outside of a body. The body allows the spirit to give expression. And so you recognize the spirit by the body. The body's the vehicle for the spirit, the vehicle for the soul. And if you have an active, moving body, that's the presence of a living soul. And the world cannot see the invisible Christ except through the eyes of faith, except as God grants them the ability to see by the work of his Holy Spirit through the witness of his word. But they can see the church. And so while they can't see the invisible Christ, they can know the reality of Christ and they can become acquainted with Christ, and they can be drawn to Christ because we are his body. He's our head. When he left, he gave us the work that he did. He gave it to us to do, to carry out his business, to carry out his work. So we are the visible proof of Christ's presence. You know, you can't go to a place, like I told you, like Vanuatu or another place, or even come to a local church and hear the testimonies and look at the lives of the people and see the, very, the varied races, the varied cultures, the varied life stories without saying, something happened here. Something has changed and unified these people who would never be unified in any other way. You know what it is? It's Christ. We're his body. Now, if you're going to treat a bride with respect, what are you going to do with the body of Christ? Will you be as those who passed by as he hung in agony on the cross and crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what to do, and they wagged their heads and reviled him? Are you going to be as those who, who would, would uh, sit at his feet and gamble over his garments? Are we that callous about the local church that we don't recognize it to be his body? And so we treat it with disdain and disrespect and we don't love one another and we don't treasure one another and we don't seek to elevate and, and hiding in the shadows were two of his secret disciples. And when they had the opportunity, they came out and they begged Pilate for the body of Jesus so that they might lay it to rest. They wanted to treat it with the respect that it deserved. They wanted to show their love for the body. Where are, where is that love for the local church in the lives of Christians? We need to recognize, and by the way, all the work of a body is done outside of that body. Now, there are many members in the body. So Paul uses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, we are the body of Christ and members in particular. And God set those members in place as it pleased him. And he gave them the manifestations of the spirit to profit everybody, to profit with all. So we have many members. My body has many members. I was doing a little research on that this week and found out that nobody knows the number of members in the body. But there's something like 200 and some bones. And there's, uh, I forget, 60, 70 vital organs or 
or not, not necessarily vital organs, but organs in the body. There's so many muscles. And, you know, you start thinking about all the different parts of your body. It's amazing. And so it's like a church. We have a church and we have only 100 people. We got more members in our physical body than we have in our church body. And all of them are there for a reason. But they're not there. They're there to work together. But to do what? To carry out the directions of the head. And so the church responds to its head. And we're there to be obedient. All of our work is to be done outside of us, outside of the church. In the church, we're strengthening each other. We're encouraging each other. We're nourishing each other. We're being fed inside the church. But for what reason? So that we might go out and do the work outside the body. And our hands might do then what Jesus' hands would be doing. Our feet will take us where Jesus' feet would take him. That's why missions is so thrilling to a local church because we get to watch people go where Jesus would go. His feet would take him. He left his home and went to, came to earth. And so we go in his place, our hands doing his work, our feet doing his work, and our lips speaking his words, our, our love showing out. So in our community, we are the visible proof of Christ's presence. The church is empowered by a divine spirit. Just as your body is unified by one spirit. We've already talked about that. And so every church member is an instrument of Christ's service. The body is the servant of the head. The head has no way of working out its purposes except through the body. And the Lord Jesus Christ, amazingly enough to you and me, if we're, if we're thinking about it thoroughly, amazingly is pleased to work out his purposes through this body right here, through every one of you. But every member has a role to play. But it's all for manifesting Christ and accomplishing the works of Christ in this community. And the church as his body is amply provided for. You know, there have been a lot of bodies, mine included, ruined, injured, hurt by thoughtless heads. Think about that for a minute. A lot of bodies unnecessarily hurt by thoughtless heads. You men know what I'm talking about. You got to get as close to the edge as you can get. You got to climb that. You got to take this challenge and that challenge and this challenge. And you're on the edge of the precipice of death all the time. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Great heads are often hindered by weak and deformed bodies. What's his name? Stephen Hawking? Now they found a way in technology to enable him to accomplish a whole lot. But you have a brilliant head and no body, a paralyzed body, a body that can't respond and carry out the wishes of the head. What happens to the brilliance of the head? Church, you need to understand you are his body. You are fit together, baptized into one spirit, 
for the purpose of carrying out his work. And his work is not done in here. His work is done out there. In here is where you nourish each other and where each member of the physical body is sending messages and strengthening and helping and aiding and building up and encouraging and responding to the needs of the body, but only so that the body will be healthy as it goes out to work, as it goes out to feed the family, as it goes out to do its work. And the work of our head is the work and I'm going to just give you three things. I'm not even going to preach on them. Jesus came into the world, number one, to bear witness to the truth. If we're going to be his body, we must take a stand for the truth. If we lose the truth, if the truth is allowed to be per per perverted or polluted or changed or distorted, what's going to happen to the next generation? The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And Jesus said to Pilate, let me tell you why I was born. Let me tell you why I came to the world, to bear witness to the truth. Number two, he came into the world to seek and save that which is lost. He came to seek and save that which is lost. He came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If we're going to do the work of Christ, we need to stand for the truth. We need to defend the truth. We need to learn the truth and teach the truth to our children, but we need to go after souls. We need to seek and save that which is lost. And by the way, everybody Jesus met and preached the gospel to didn't get saved. And so why do you expect they'll all get saved when you go? You're just commanded to sow the seed. And he sowed the seed. And some fell on good ground. And some will fall on good ground. But that's not it. The issue is, husbands, you're the head. Wives, submit to your husband in every ordinance. Do what he asks you to do. So we obey our head. We obey him. We do what he would do if he were here. And then thirdly, he said, I'm among you as he that serveth. Our problem is when we talk about going to a church service, we're spelling the word S-E-R-V-E-U-S. I'm going to the church, serve us. But the church is not about serve us. The church is about service. It's about serving Christ. It's about giving and serving and loving and sharing and laying down our lives. He laid down his life for us, so we lay down our lives for the brethren. So the church is about standing, sowing, and serving. That's what we do if we are his body. So I challenge you, church, to think about it. There was a couple on a transatlantic liner years ago and everybody was drawn to them. Everybody's they couldn't escape looking at them because of the contrast between them. The, the, the man was a fairly tall, very good-looking, very healthy, strong man. And he was always in the company of a woman who seemed to be about the same age as him, but she was in a wheelchair. And she seemed very weak and very frail, and he was always helping her to eat and always doing things for her and just always fussing over her the whole time. And one day while they were on the, uh, I don't know what you call it because I haven't been on a cruise ship, but they were out there by the rail that looks over the water, and they're uh, walking along a walkway, I guess it would be called, and, and, uh, and they overheard, he overheard, a couple make a comment. One of the, one of the two people in, the, in this couple made a comment and said, what a pity. To see such a strong and, and uh, attractive and uh, young man with such potential having to be a slave to such a pitiful wreck of a woman. He heard it. 
he took her back to the room whenever that was time came. And then he went and found the couple. And he went up to him and said, I couldn't help but overhear what you said. And he said, uh, you're right. He said, uh, let me tell you why I'm a slave to this woman. Many years ago, I was the owner of a successful business. And uh, somebody in my business um, did some dishonest dealings, scanned with a lot of funds, and had the clever wit to pull it off and make it look like it was me. And he said, so because I couldn't prove otherwise, I lost everything. My reputation was ruined. My friends abandoned me. Our wealth was gone. And he said, I lost my health. And he said, when everybody else had abandoned me and when I was a, a crippled wreck of a man, he said, there was my wife right beside me. And she loved me and she encouraged me and she nursed me back to health. And he said, now I am what I am today only for one reason, because of her. And he said, you're right, I am her slave. And I only hope that you have the privilege someday to command so willing a slave as I. What did he do for you? Have you ever read Ezekiel 16? Where God talks about when he found Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, lying in the ditch. They'd been born, they were unwashed and uncleaned and unloved and unpitied. And he passed by and he looked on them and he loved them. And he picked them up and he washed them and he anointed them and he clothed them and he made a covenant with them and he put a crown upon their head. That's what he did for them. And the same story is what he did for me and the same story of what he did for you. Oh, that he would have the privilege of commanding so willing a slave as he is to us. We are his body. That's what a church is. It's a place to be treasured, to be loved to be delighted in, to be sacrificed for because it's the bride of the precious Lord Jesus and it is the body of Jesus carrying out his will in this world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray you'll help these dear folks to have a new, sweeter appreciation of the church. Lord, I pray that that appreciation of the church would so work in their lives that they would give themselves more holy than ever before to the work of the ministry and that your uh, power and your will would be accomplished here in this place. We rejoice in what's already been done. We rejoice in what we see and hear. But Lord, as we've already talked about tonight, it can become uh, ritual. It can become commonplace and we can despise each other. We can, we can allow division and yet if we understand the picture you wanted us to have, of the church and its preciousness. We won't allow that. We'll fight it every step of the way and we'll labor hard to keep the body whole and healthy for the purpose of carrying out your work in this world and for the purpose of winning the lost to Jesus Christ. Please bless in this invitation time and move and help folks to respond as it pleases you, I pray in Jesus' name.